0: As mentioned, um, when we last left off, we saw how despite everything that had happened, you know, in fact, Ruth is the one that can kind of sing this song, you know, take everything, because you kind of have taken everything already. We saw how despite everything that had happened, Ruth continued to live with her mother-in-law. You know, everything that had happened so far, she continued to live with her mother-in-law, which highlighted her lack of a husband. She still had no husband in the land, which also meant that she still had no children in the land as well. And so just remember that in this society, uh, to have anything, to have any sort of future, any significance, or any sort of status, she really needed a husband and a child, a little bit different from our culture today. Now, our passage today starts with Naomi talking to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and her tone is very, very different uh, from what we saw during the, you know, most of the first half of the book of Ruth. Read with me, Ruth Ruth verse uh, one to two. Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you'll be taken care of? Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. We saw our uh, last time in Ruth that Naomi seems to have repented in some way as she experienced God's covenant love. Up until this point, Naomi has been pretty self-absorbed. You know, We can kind of see why that was the case. We can make a reason for it, but she has been pretty self-absorbed. Uh, she's been unable to look beyond herself to Ruth's desperate situation. You know, Naomi hasn't been able to see that her daughter-in-law is in a pretty bad way. She also hasn't been able to see Ruth's self-sacrificial love, her commitment to her, and how God had already shown His love and forgiveness for Naomi through her daughter-in-law Ruth. But here, and at the end of chapter two, her tone shifts, and she seems actually concerned for Ruth. Naomi's repentance ties directly with this change in her demeanor and her newfound care for her daughter-in-law. A fruit of true repentance is turning eyes away from self and looking to others. That is a fruit of true repentance. You'll know when you truly repented when you focus a little less on yourself and you look to others. How much of God's command to love others would come easier if we were able to put those others before ourselves? Now, because of repentance, Naomi gets motivated to figure out how to serve Ruth's needs. But she knows her society she knows the neighborhood that she's living in, and she knows that no normal person in Bethlehem is going to give rest to Ruth, the outsider. Now, no doubt, up until this point, she's already heard the people gossiping about this foreigner, this outsider. Maybe they made mention of the fact that she's probably just like all the other Moabite women throughout history. If you don't know Moabite history, back in Numbers 25, Moabite women had led Israelites to sexual sin and to idolatry. They seduced men and convinced them, worship our gods instead in exchange for sex. So how does Naomi plan on helping Ruth? Okay, this is her big plan. Perhaps feeling the urgency of time running out because the harvest season is closing. Maybe she's worried about just the slowness of how Boaz and Ruth's budding relationship seems to be growing, Naomi starts turning to these old familiar ways. Verses three to four. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. This sounds uh, pretty shady, right? Like, Naomi has been with Ruth for at least 10 years. She should know by this point what kind of woman Ruth is. This is her daughter in law. You know, they've lived in the same household for quite a while. And it's also what we've seen thus far in our series through Ruth. We already know Ruth isn't this kind of woman, she's a woman of great honor and character, she's loyal, she's filled with the covenant love of God. She's willing to live and die in order to serve her mother-in-law. She's not gonna say no to her mother-in-law, but she's a woman of great honor and character. And yet, Naomi's plan puts Ruth into this very compromising position. You know, we might read this with our innocent glasses on, you know, and we might be thinking, it probably means something else, you know, but clearly it doesn't. It's in a very compromising position. It's not too far remo- removed from the Moabite women described in Numbers 25, those who seduced the Israelite men in order to get what they wanted. Was Ruth truly the one that Naomi thought of as my daughter when she says, My daughter? Or was she still the Moabitess, the outsider in her eyes. Now, in a situation like the one that Naomi tries to convince Ruth to set up, you can imagine some of the things that could happen next. Okay, you can imagine this. In fact, we don't have to imagine it. Okay? We've seen it multiple times, maybe not in our lives, but throughout the Bible already by this point. We've seen very passive men just going along with situations. We've seen the examples of Jacob and his two wives and their slaves. Just read this again the other day, disturbing. Or Abraham, with his slave Hagar, just goes along with his wife's plan. Or maybe we take it all the way back to Adam and his lack of protection, his lack of leadership over his wife Eve and the first sin in the garden. Passivity. Sometimes it's like looking in a mirror for us men, right? It's passivity. Naomi is seeking a good thing for Ruth, but she's going about it in much the wrong way. She's begun to see the covenant love of God, but Naomi's still turning to her old familiar ways of trying to force things to happen rather than trusting in God. She's trying to engineer this situation where Boaz will have to marry Ruth. She knows that he's not only a man of obligation, but he goes a little bit above and beyond. So maybe if she plays her cards right, gets Ruth into the right situation, they'll get married. Very similar to how she and Elimelech tried to engineer a situation for themselves when they left Bethlehem for Moab during that time of famine, all the way back in chapter one. She's trying to control What happens next? We too, we often seek to make a way for ourselves, don't we? Like we say that we trust in God's timing, but do we really? We plan, we scheme, we try to set up situations for ourselves where we think we're going to get the results that we really want. Now imagine with me that the plan succeeded the way that Naomi had set up what would be achieved, what would actually happen? What would be the unintended consequences of what she sets up? All of history points at negative repercussions for acting in these ways and not trusting in God. Read verses uh, five to seven. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz eight, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down." So Ruth agrees to go along with her mother-in-law's plan. You've seen in recent weeks how she actually throws herself into harm's way for her mother-in-law's sake, whether that was in moving to Bethlehem in the first place with no plan on how she's gonna live, or whether it was in the previous weeks where we saw that she enters into the fields of grain in order to gather grain, putting herself in danger. She's put herself in harm's way physically many times already. You see this, right? But now, her reputation was going to be even more at stake. Moving to Bethlehem is one thing when you're a Moabite woman. But imagine this situation. The people are already talking about her, already gossiping about her. What would they say if they caught wind that a Moabitess, an outsider, was doing all this, uncovering this man's feet in the threshing floor. Physically as well, she'd be in much more danger as well. Never advise your daughter-in-law to do this, if you ever have one. Forget the fields in broad daylight. What would happen to Ruth if she went alone to this man in the middle of the night? Recently, we had two friends that came up from Melbourne to visit us. Um, They stayed in an Airbnb nearby. They asked if this suburb that they were staying in, that their accommodation was located in, was a safe one to walk around in the middle of the night. Okay, like one of the visitors was a little bit younger, so her parents were a little bit worried. They're like, make sure you never go outside, you know, after 4 p.m. Like, because it's dark, you know, basically. My first thought was to say, it's safe. What do you mean? It's so safe. I've never had any problems. But then, me personally, I haven't ever felt really unsafe in any neighborhood, at any time of day. Whereas these two women who had come to visit us, their experience in life was very different from my own. And I wish this wasn't true, I really do. I wish this wasn't the world that we live in even today. This isn't just in Bethlehem times, this is today, where women have to be so guarded and wary all the time. Speaking to just the men here, at New Life, are you aware of this disparity? Like, are you aware of this disparity between men and women in life? I've never worried that someone could possibly stalk me in the street, that they could follow me home, that they could overpower me physically. Never. One of the saddest things that I've ever learned from one of my previous church experiences was not how many women had faced sexual harassment or sexual assault, but how few hadn't. Verses eight to nine. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing. For your family redeemer. Sometimes in situations where we sin, where we Christians sin, we like to try to like, you know, use some euphemisms, we like to say we got carried away. And it makes it sound a little bit better, like you're like floating downstream or something, we got carried away until after the fact when the fog lifts and then we have a little bit of clarity and we see what just happened. And then we're like, Oh man, that was sin. That was bad. Naomi's instructions were very clear here. Let the man explain to you what you should do. She's encouraging this passivity on the part of Boaz, first of all, to go into seduction. Like, go and uncover his feet, lay down there after he's had too much to drink. Let's just see what happens. And she's also encouraging passivity on her daughter-in-law Ruth's part as well. Let the man explain to you what you should do. But Ruth, this is where her actions deviate a little bit from her mother's plan. Ruth's actions were very clear. She tells Boaz exactly what she's after before anyone could possibly get carried away. Do you see that? Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. What does this mean? We've had a number of engagements this year, marriages, you know, particularly in recent weeks here at New Life. For those of you who are friends, or for, you know, some of your friends who have uploaded it onto YouTube, perhaps you've seen, you got to witness their proposals. What usually happens, what usually takes place during these proposals? The man gets down on one knee, presents a ring to this woman, asks her to marry him, and usually they say yes. I think in 100% of the cases so far, that we know of, they've said yes. So when Ruth is asking Boaz, take me under your wing, what does this mean? It doesn't mean mentor me, okay? Another translation for this is, spread the wing of your garment over me. Cover me with the edge of your garment. In ancient times when this is taken place, there was no giving of rings. The De Beers Corporation didn't exist at this time. Okay, so instead of a commitment to marriage, through the use of a ring, what could be communicated instead is covering the woman with the corner of this man's garment. Essentially, what Ruth is saying here to Boaz is straight up, I want you to propose to me, and then we'll see where this leads. She's not looking to seduce him so that he feels some sort of obligation towards her. She's telling him exactly what her intentions are before anything can possibly happen to take on the role of a family redeemer and provide rest and refuge for her and her mother-in-law. Now this is very unusual. Would you feel like it was a little bit out of the norm if you found out, even at New Life, if you found out at New Life that Selang had presented a ring to Daniel? Or if you found out Linda had gotten down on one knee and asked Josh, marry me? Would you find that a little bit unusual I would, honestly, I would. I I feel a little bit more traditional. This is us in 2022 Australia talking, and we might feel this way. But imagine in Bethlehem at this time. It was completely against the norm for this to happen, for this to take place. Not only was it a woman proposing to a man, not only was it a younger person proposing to an older person, not only was it a field worker proposing to a field owner, just breaking every societal norm. It was a foreigner. It was an outsider proposing marriage to a member of the covenant community of God. It was a Moabitess. What gives Ruth the boldness to make such a proposal? Is it just the fact that the law of the family redeemer gives her enough confidence that Boaz will help her and her mother-in-law as well. Maybe it's the fact that he just seems plain like a good man that goes beyond the mere obligations of the law, this law that doesn't actually cover her anyway. Ezekiel sixteen eight reads this. Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love so I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God, and you became mine. This is the type of mercy and love that Ruth was looking for. In Ezekiel, we see it. There's no obligation to do this, but out of pure love and mercy, Because of who he is, the Lord God covers over his people, spreading the edge of his garment over them to cover their naked form, entering into a covenant with them. Ruth's hope is that Boaz will display this type of covenant love that God does. And from what we've seen of him so far, Boaz is a man whose heart has been so touched by the love of God that he overflows with grace to everyone around him. Let me say once again that there was no obligation for Boaz to respond in any sort of way like this. If there was an obligation, clearly Naomi wouldn't have hatched this terrible, strange plan in the first place. And now, Ruth had just said exactly what she was after. And to be honest, it's not very appealing. She's saying, can you, at great cost to yourself, do something to rescue us from this situation of our own making? Give us a future, even though you don't owe us anything, even though you don't have any sort of obligation over us. What gives Ruth strength to make this request to Boaz is the fact that she knows that her future doesn't lie in humanity's hands. She knows that her future doesn't depend on our own control. If we believe in a sovereign God, then we trust in a sovereign God. So how does Boaz respond? Verses 10 to 11. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character." So just like when they first met, Boaz calls her, my daughter, not Moabitess, not foreigner, not outsider. Boaz, once again, extends kindness and dignity and humanity once again. He's refusing to take advantage of her vulnerable position. Whereas a lesser man would have been passive, would have possibly just let it happen, would maybe have even blamed her for seducing him after the fact. Boaz takes the lead, and he takes the debt and the risk that marriage to Ruth is gonna bring. For all our unmarried people here, marriage in any given circumstance is not just between two people. You guys know this, right? Like it becomes a unification of families, you marry their family as well, and it's a combining of finances and debts as well. I hope that doesn't change anything for you engaged couples. Now, Ruth's situation isn't an enticing one for any prospective bachelor in Bethlehem. Not only is it a huge financial burden, considering her mother-in-law was a widow as well as Ruth, But there was a social cost involved as well, because she was a hated outsider in Bethlehem. So you can imagine for Boaz, he's well-respected around town, and he must be thinking, what's this gonna be doing to my reputation? In a worldly sense, people often think about worthiness of love. We talk about this, we think about this, our parents sometimes talk about this. Like, is this man, is this woman worthy of my son or daughter? Whether or not someone is the best possible prospect for us, we think about this. And in fact, Boaz himself wouldn't have been the best possible prospect for Ruth. He's an older man, it tells us. A younger man would have a better chance with Ruth to produce and to provide children for her, which would then give Ruth significance and a little bit of status in the land. But love isn't about valuations. If it were, could the Lord God look upon us in our pitiful condition in Ezekiel and decide that we are worthy of his love? Would any of us be sitting here if it were about valuations? But what happens to us when God covers over us? We have a change in status. We see the content of Ruth's character We see that it's given by God's gracious covering over her, and it speaks volumes about who she is. Once again, verses 10 to 11, then he said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. And don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Up until this point, we know, and Boaz probably knows just as well as anyone else, that people have not had very nice things to say about Ruth. A lot of rumors floating about, a lot of things could be said about this Moabite woman. They only knew her as this cursed, hated outsider. And yet, she's conducted herself in such a way that people can only possibly praise her. What has she done so far? she's put herself in harm's way for the sake of her mother-in-law. She's moved herself to this land where she doesn't know anyone. This highlighted section there that you see in front of you, all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Originally, in the original language, is literally all the gates of my people know that you are a worthy woman. In Proverbs, it says, let her works praise her at the city gates. You see the similarity there. In our English language Bibles, we have Judges that comes right before Ruth. You know, we looked at that in the first uh, week of our series. But in the Hebrew Bible, the way the ordering is done is a little bit different. Where the book of Proverbs precedes the book of Ruth. And so this is the last thing you read before you read the book of Ruth. The final verse of Proverbs talks about this woman of noble character. This Proverbs 31 woman, and you might have heard of her, whose works praise her at the city gates. And then, suddenly, we read about this Ruth. Boaz clearly sees her as this type of woman and praises her as such, as God's gracious covering over her produces the fruit of her character, which leads to her praise among the townspeople of Bethlehem. At least, that's the implication. In humility and in quiet devotion, Ruth has committed herself to all these different actions. She hasn't, you know, she hasn't tooted her own horn here. She hasn't told everyone, look at me, look at what I'm doing. But in humility and in her devotion, Ruth's actions testify of this amazing God. What about for us? Who do people look towards when they assess our character? Are you a woman of great character? Are you a man of great character? Can people explain who you are by pointing to our God? Now the couples that have gone through a bit of premarital counseling with me uh, know that we talk about this kind of thing, about what it means to submit, what it means to love as Christ loved the church, and the kind of character that it requires for these two to be carried out. Without the covering of God over an unrighteous and an unworthy people, we wouldn't be able to do this. There's no way. It's not possible for us to do this. A woman should never submit to a man without this kind of character. A man without this kind of character should never even find a woman of this kind of character either. In fact, even in our churches, people have often abused these types of relationships and these types of Bible verses to express their own selfish desires. It's unfortunate that we hear stories about that, but you can see in Ruth's and Boaz's own examples of humility and the laying down of one's own interests, of self-sacrificial covenant love that points to the greater love that is found in Jesus Christ and the church. Jesus dying for you on the cross and giving you the gift of adoption into God's family, that's the blueprint for healthy relationships, for marriages, and for your conduct with outsiders. Verses 12 to 13. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there's a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, That's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Boaz goes on to tell her that there's this other family redeemer that exists in this town that's closer in relation than he is. And so Boaz is gonna respectfully stand aside for him, should he want to exercise this right. There's a lot of, you know, land laws involved and all sorts of stuff, right? But if you refused, Boaz is promising to redeem Ruth herself, uh, himself. Like, you can imagine the moment that he brings this other person up, it kind of feels like you're like, you know, doing a sideways pass and saying, hey, here's my cousin though, you should talk to him, not me. Like, but no. He promises to redeem Ruth himself. He lays her mind at ease, reassuring her that whatever happens, Ruth and her mother-in-law will be taken care of no matter what. And it puts our minds at ease as well as we're reading this, as we're hearing this. But again, the question arises just as it did at the end of chapter two. What next? Like, What's God gonna do next? Is it gonna be this other family redeemer that we haven't even seen before? Verses 14 to 15, so she lay down at his feet until morning but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into the town. In the morning, before her reputation could be unjustly ruined, Boaz sends Ruth away, but with a gift. These six measures of barley. What are six measures of barley? This is more than 36 kilograms of barley. There's <laughs> a lot of barley to be carrying around. You know, using our standard measurement from a uh, few weeks ago, this is like four and a quarter Jonas's. So I can't even imagine, like, you know, carrying all this. Boaz literally has to shovel this much grain into her shawl. It doesn't help her, but like, he puts it on her back, and she carries it back into town. You know, she's not a thin, spindly woman, you can tell, right? And so, it puts into our minds again, what about Ruth's need for a child, though? Not grain, but a literal seed. What will God do next? We'll find out in the coming weeks. Why don't I pray for us? Father, as we say that we trust in you let it ring true in our hearts. We often talk of how you're sovereign, we often talk of how you're loving, how you're kind, how you'll never leave us nor forsake us, and yet quite often, we find ourselves in the situation where we, like the prodigal son, go out from your household and turn our backs on you. We find that we're the ones that leave you greener pastures. Before we get there, before we find ourselves in our own personal moabs, before we find out that those pastures aren't greener, that only famine and death exist in these places without you, turn our hearts back to you. You're faithful, you're true, and when we ask, what will you do next? We know, Lord, do next what is best for us. We have so much doubt, so much darkness in our hearts, and indeed, we struggle through life. Let us not get shipwrecked by waves of our own making or by waves that come in this world of sin, but may we turn to you really give it all to you. Anytime that we're emptied, we know, Lord, that you fill us with something far greater. You fill us with the love of God. You fill us, Lord, with adoption into your family. And you fill us, Lord, with eternal life. May we grow in compassion and grace. May we, as we are changed by your Holy Spirit, resemble your son more and more become men and women of great character that people might look to us and they might only be able to explain who we are by looking to your son Jesus would you be with us and help us to love you we love you Lord and we thank you in Jesus name we pray amen